Hello friends, welcome back to the podcast. Writing an introduction for our guest this week is an impossible task, but I've tried and here it is. Martin Prechtel is an artist, writer, musician, storyteller, teacher, healer and leading thinker. He's also one of the funniest guests we've ever had on the Earthly Delights. He has lived an incredibly full life and has some profound lessons to share to, to whoever is open to learning. I was first introduced to the work of Martine by my dear friend Matt, who shared with me his book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, Grief and Praise. In this book, he speaks of the inherent interconnection between grief and praise in a truly life-affirming manner. It is one of the most influential books on how I view life, and I would encourage anyone to give it a read if they are struggling with grief or praise, grief or joy in their own lives. To be brutally honest, I would recommend the work of Martine to all of you listening. Why do I say that? Well, if you're listening to the Earthly Delights, chances are that you are finding navigating the modern world very challenging. I don't need to go into the many ways as to how life in 2023 is sucking our life force, but I know that many of us are left today feeling blocked and numb, hopeless, and even apathetic. Martine's work addresses these maladies in our current situation, but still manages to instill a deep sense of hope, love, meaning, and gratitude in the people who listen to him talk and to the people who read his books. His core messages are simple, but profoundly countercultural. And I invited him on because I think we all need to hear his words until they sink into our bones. In his conversation, we speak about some of the crucial lessons in his book, The Unlikely Peace at Kuchumakik, the parallel lives of people as plants, keeping the seeds alive. The, some of these lessons include th the nature of our cultural disconnection, or what he calls un unintactness, the importance of giving energy towards something beautiful that we will never fully see blossom in our lifetime as well as the significance of attempting something even if it feels impossible, which I'm sure we can all relate to nowadays. These areas of discussion are so relevant now, and it was an absolute delight and honor to have this time with Martine. Thank you all for listening. And I left some of, uh, I said I left a link to his website and his soul sparking music in the show notes if you want more from Martine. The new album, The Sun's Gonna Melt Your Gun, is a really touching, powerful piece of art, and you will hear a little snip of it at the end of this podcast. As always, thanks a million, friends. All the best. Martin Prechtel, welcome to the podcast. I first wondered, would you be open to starting our conversation with a little prayer? Yeah. What language would you like it in? Whatever feels right right now. All right. Did the echo to shell have a little shell is a how a moon to live? The sal of loha, pin of con pin of a pin of weak pin of watch patricula. Squa, shoe shape, cocushkum shush. Ha ha mahata and caban and katsihon wavia. Chapra slat rushin shin canawal anti one. Chapra slat rushin halam and a cotic halku you richelier. Paraha stit a chahavra. Mr. O'Connell, Karaskana, Dublin, Ireland, Huyuta, Mahihabi, Naki Kokala, Kana, Matiosha, Shawakohila, Kilabu, Silabu, Slabe, Kalo, Nemela, Takasla, Mohonlo, Lolo, Shlehula, Matthew, Shir. Yeah, that's a prayer. It's beautiful. 
Beautiful. Thank you, Martin. That's a Tutuhil mine. Yeah, you bet. Do you mind telling us a little bit of the translation, just a rough translation? <laughs> You're going to be here for three weeks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind I don't mind, but I think you will. Just uh, actually all, everything that I have to say will explain that prayer. Uh, anyway, the, the point is uh, prayers are not to get anything or anything like that. The prayers that indigenous people make, you know, they're to make sure that everything yeah, gets in sync and starts on a certain foot and keeps going. And, and basically words are looked upon as jewels or fruit. I mean, very few things that humans have to give the, the world that is spiritual and gives us everything. So all the words themselves are magically oriented so that they feed those beings like as if we were eating breakfast you know in other words they what they what they eat from our words is what gives them force and it doesn't give them force to be alive it gives them force to deal with us as humans so yeah to translate that but also they're not spoken just to speak and so it's not just like any old words there's a special words old time words ancient words and Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that, Martin. Really appreciate it. You bet. Uh, and as you said, like it's it's really important to. I really want to start this conversation off on the right foot. Um, Martin, we ask every guest, and I'm sure this might be your favorite question. We ask our every guest to tell us a little bit about themselves, because many of our listeners won't mm. have come across <laughs> your books or your or your uh, talks or your workshops. So yeah. could you tell us a bit about yourself? <laughs> uh, well, go read my books. <laughs> no, that's what they're all about. Uh, me, I'm a, just a little tiny. I'm very short. I'm 5'6". I used to think I was tall till I came back from Guatemala. And then I realized I was just a shrimp, you know. All these Americans had moved into New Mexico. I'm from New Mexico. I've, I'm a New Mexican. And New Mexico... Uh, has been settled by Europeans for about 450, 500 years. And there's a lot of indigenous people here too. My mother was an educator on Indian reservation, native reservation as a PC to say these days, and Pueblo Indian people. And uh, it was just, these are not the, the pop Indians that you see, you know, talking on the radio or on television or whatever, on computer. These people don't allow themselves to talk and they're still very, very old time. And I grew up with these people because she caught herself a job on the reservation and I grew up speaking Karis. Now, most people even in New Mexico didn't even know what Karis is because there's only seven villages that speak it. And in, in those villages, there's only about four or more of the people themselves still speak it. But that's what I grew up speaking with my chums. And then uh, my mother was uh, come from a certain part of Canada. Her people came from Canada, and they were natives, but they're not natives from New Mexico. And she spoke French, and so I got a little of that in me. And then my dad, he's uh, uh, half Irish, um, as we say, and then half Moravian German, which uh, very old bunch of missionaries. And and then his uh, my great grandmother was uh, a Lenape named Mary Flowers. 
And I grew up in New Mexico, uh, oh, in the, you know, 50s and 60s, and left the United States in the 70s, uh, right after Jimi Hendrix died, <laughs> to be honest. And uh, I ended up just wandering like a leaf in a stream and hit shore somewhere around, you know, 1971 and a half, and ended up in uh, Guatemala. And I uh, wrote a lot of books about all that, and it's an enormous amount of detail. I became part of a town called Santiago Atitlan in the highlands, which they call Rumushushur to live. And it was their language I was praying in when I began there. I uh, was very fortunate to, uh, uh, just more than fortunate, because when I left New Mexico, the world was caving in on me. My mother died very weird circumstances, and... A marriage I had made in order to remake the world at the age of 17, you know, falling apart. And I was uh, 21 years old. And and when I got there, this old dude, his name was Nicolas Chiviliut Ashoy. You probably read a little bit about him, maybe somewhere in my books. Absolutely. He, uh, he took me under his uh, wing and drove me like a pack horse, you know, <laughs> which is just what I needed. And he was <laughs> a wonderful guy. And he... Uh, well, anyway, I learned everything. Uh, what he mostly taught me was how to learn. He taught me a lot of specifics, and I learned to speak the language, everything. And I just became part of the town. There's a lot of jealous people, anthropologists, and, and you know, left-wing people who are, really tried to say that none of this happened, but it, it did. You ask anybody there, and we have lots and lots of conversation. But uh, eventually got married there, spent, had children, um, when the children were very young, a big war uh, became evident. Anyway, I had I was I was cha- charted to be killed by various and sundry organizations because I had become a leader in the village, and I wouldn't side with anybody. I wouldn't side with the right. I wouldn't side with the left, and I wouldn't side with the other left or the other right because they were all they wanted to do was kill people, and I was. <laughs> Basically, a doctor. I wasn't really, you know, my idea was peace, man. And so I got charted for death by all sides. Now, some sides were better funded than others and had more bullets. So they were more adamant about how they chased me. But the long and short of it is I ended up back in the United States. And it was really, really hard to come here. I don't mean, like, just my own, like, the the culture shock or anything like that, which was definitely, I mean, still in culture shock. But, um... And, and this was in the 80s. This was in the 80s when I was returning. And uh, it's because I was married, but my marriage was not recognized by the American government. And so I had a lot, a lot, a lot of immigration problems and eventually overcame those and, and got as far away from cities, as far away from human beings of any sort, native or Anglo or anything, and lived out in the bush. And um, that's what I did. And I saw some people slowly discovered that I had this proclivity for healing people with medicine ways that came from somewhere else. And, and pretty soon, you know, they were lined up from here to hell. And I started treating them and, you know, kind of got moderately famous in the local area. And people were coming from everywhere. And, uh, and then uh, it's a long story. Anyway, you could read the books. But at some point, um, that particular marriage fell apart. The kids went in various and sundry ways, which is an extremely long story. I was uh, once again adrift. Uh, I started wandering around. And in this time, uh, there was a guy who's a, he's a kind of well-known poet. 
His name was Robert Bly. And he came for some reason, somebody who had been worked with me had talked to him. And, you know, he was he was really into going into seeing people and all the interesting people of the world. And to his, uh, you know, dismay, he came across me and um, he was in big trouble. And I suppose it's none of, uh, for me to say what it was going on with his family and all the deaths and this, that and the other. But him and his wife were, Ruth, were became very good friends of mine. And so he hired me, like almost like a bodyguard, a spiritual bodyguard. It really was uh, to go to these. To go, I really, I you know, basically stood at the door, you know, made sure nobody did anything weird. And um, <laughs> but I ended up teaching more than anybody else because all the guys wanted to hear what I had to say, and we we're doing and held these crazy men's conferences in those days, which were very, very popular, you know. And uh, I was still a person who wouldn't talk like we are now, you know, and I wouldn't talk on television. I would, you know. I was, I was, it was a big stretch for me to go to those things, but I was totally amazed at what they were actually doing. I didn't know, you know, that anybody would listen to me. And so, um, anyway, I started traveling around and then I ended up in Britain and in Ireland and, uh, and, uh, all different places, Canada and, and all the islands and different places. But uh, eventually, um, I, I tired of that because it seemed like it was all based on psychology and the stuff I was teaching was, I felt was real and was on the ground and wasn't about mm. therapy or about people, but about what we can be as people and what we can, not, not, not to be um, sarcastic or anything, but you know, that my, what was wrong with me wasn't more important than what I could do. And so after a mm. while, and plus, I was only dealing with men. And uh, I mean, they're wonderful and everything, but they're a bit boring compared to women and men. And so I started doing my own little conferences and workshops and stuff, and they became immense. And all of the territorialism and people in their garbage, you know, it's uh, the public life and all that. I just, I just, just kept plowing away. But Robert, well, you know, he stayed my friend for sure. But he said to me, he says one day, he says, you know, nobody actually believes you. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you don't have any books. I said, what's that have to do with the price of hay, you know? He says, yeah, everything you say is amazing, but it goes in one ear and out the other, and they like sitting there while they're sitting there and getting kind of like a, a word bath while you talk, and then they're gone. I said, well, I've had that feeling. I said, you know, it was very depressing for me. So you got to write a book. And so he arranged for a publisher to give me a call, and the publisher sent me a ghostwriter, you know, to write my book for me while I dictated. I said, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to write my own book, damn it, you know. And they said, but you don't know how to write. I said, I'll learn, you know, so I learned. And they didn't like it, and this is a long story. So anyway, I started writing books, and I, so I started my own school uh, because, yeah, and I started, matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now, the window. It's a big adobe building, you know, gigantic. It looks like something from probably the ninth century, you know, in the uh, Taklamakan Desert, you know, and, or the Margiana Oasis or somewhere in Turkmenistan. And um, it became very popular. People started coming. And until COVID, I mean, I had the big attendance. And so I had to stop seeing people and start doing things by mail. But... Um, that's that's a, a little bit of my background, you know. I, I'm married with a beautiful, incredible uh, American lady who actually made it so I could survive in this society. And I have two kids who are just, you know, I don't, you know, everyone talks about their kids, but mine definitely are the most brilliant and beautiful. 
and I'm also a rock and roll star, but I, I, it's under another name. I have another. I have a band, and we have doing lots of protest music around the world. Our latest album is doing very good on Spotify. But anyway, none of that. So we're talking about Martin Prechtel instead of that other guy. So, well, Hello. Martin, I actually, I <laughs> actually want to ask. <laughs> okay. That in your books you speak of um, you, or you use the phrase intact people. Uh, and you oh, mentioned yes. like your time with Robert Bly, and yet you say that you taught many people the rudimentary aspects of what it means to be an intact person or an intact human. For those unfamiliar, could you say like what is an intact person and what are such rudimentary aspects? Okay, and just for everyone's information, in the book, The Unlikely Piece at Kuchimu Kick, which is the most big and powerful book I've ever written, there's a glossary, mm-hmm. and it talks about intact. And it's strange, it's the, when I use the word intact, I actually, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm from the reservation, so I just assumed intact meant in touch, you know, and uh, intact actually... Uh, means something totally different in English. So what I'm using intact is is a person that has not been shattered by the... the uh, let me start. There's a way of being that modernity no longer has. It doesn't know that it doesn't have it. And so it's hard to talk about or teach in English, at least, because it doesn't understand the government and the root of things. And so there's They've looked for for this thing for themselves because their soul longs for intactness, which is why they take LSD or, you know, try to get all kinds of hallucinogens or travel to Peru mm-hmm. and, you know, get high on ayahuasca. And all they do is mm-hmm. see visions, but when they drop back out, they don't have it anymore. So intactness mm-hmm. means that, you don't instead of people being human beings, they're actually part of the natural world. In other words, natural indigenous people don't think of themselves as people. I mean, besides, you know, you always hear the Hungawa talks, you know, our sacred native people. But what really happens is everybody understands. And I think everybody in the world was once like this. And it comes from that. And that's why I say intactness is our ancestors. But intactness is indicated when you are actually descended from a plant, descended from animal, descended from wind, descended from a location, descended from a meteorological moment. And therefore, your life, when you die, you become those things. You explode into the other world, and then you become something that supports the whole giant universe thing and gives life to the living. And the life to the living is not with human beings as what should survive or, or the survival of humans at all. But humans are discovering after they're born that they have forgotten who they are. And this is the most mysterious thing, is that when we're... Uh, in modern world, we think that, you know, we're young and then we're wild and we're untamed. But Indians think the opposite. They think you're totally domesticated when you're born and that you don't really start to discover who your spirit really is until you're in your teenage years. And that's why we're so, you know, teenage angst and all that sort of stuff. I've written a whole bunch about it, but then you get to this place where you start to discover what is watching over you. And then you discover the thing that's watching over you is what you are. And so this idea of being intact means being in part of something, being part of something that, or it being, it's even more than being a part. It's being this thing in 
that is or being or or animal or plant or wind or breath or speech that is actually part of a universe that is not separate from the human being, but we are part of it. And so that intactness is almost impossible to impart to a people who don't know what intactness is. But when you have an intact people who have been shattered by an unintact people, it is usually because the unintact people are starving and they've got this big hole in them and they want to devour what the intact people are living with and living for and living and the way they are living. And so then the intact people end up becoming the fodder for the unintact and then they become uh, grandized or, or uh, amalgamated into the um, into the unintact uh, civilization. So civilization has been uh, a flight, has been a, a basic flight away from intactness for centuries. But it is just a small part of the human condition. Humans have been here for hundreds of thousands of years, and everyone thinks, you know, that people like before 12,000 BC, you know, were like some kind of, you know, slobbering idiots, you know, oh, hey, look, fire, you know, it's just nonsense. They were very, very, very sophisticated, our ancestors. And they were intact. And when the intactness was lost, that's what my whole teaching is about, is not when that happened, but what happened. And what can we say that inside us and around us all, this, there, the intactness is still there. We just don't know anything about it because it has to be engendered and it has to be trained. It has to be taught. It has to be given fertile ground to grow again and become itself. So some natives say that, you know, I'm crazy to be teaching this because, you know, just let all these other guys go. I said, no, man, it's, you know, it's getting to the point we one thinks we all think. So we got to be together on it, you know. So anyway, it's an impossible task, <laughs> but it's a worthy <laughs> task to be teaching it. Okay. <laughs> I have no, no illusions of doing anything uh, remarkably significant because the civilization doesn't see it that way, but that's because they're unintact. Okay. Mm. Well, you get it. Thank you for that, Martin. I really appreciate that. And I have, a, I have a feeling that there are a lot of listeners that are really resonating with what you're talking about, about the civilization, about the disconnection between, uh, between us and the, and the land and other people and the community. Yeah. And, and people I become the add, land. People are the land. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's even difficult to say in certain languages as you talk about. Mm. One thing I wanted to ask you was, I know you don't think, like you mentioned before, the answer isn't for these people who are unintact and they feel the whole. And you said the answer isn't going to Peru and trying ayahuasca. And the answer isn't going to these places like this, this village where you lived in Guatemala. Because right. it, like that kind of plays danger on those cultures. And I want this podcast to be, or this conversation to be a message of hope. And as you said, it's an impossible task, but you obviously are making a lot of progress. And I wonder, like, what do you say? <laughs> I want to raise. <laughs> what, what, okay, I'm sorry. What, what, mm. no worries. What, what do you say for those people who do feel unintact and do feel the whole, um, but are trying the kind of, methods that you talk about and that are quite common now in the West? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, people are not here to succeed. They're not here 
to get what they want. They're not here to get their share. They're here to learn how to make beauty of the type that feeds the holy in nature with the things that they can do, even if they can't see it. In the process of bestowing on another generation what they themselves have never received, even for centuries or millennia, they risk the possibility of actually becoming intact people, or at least getting close to it. You will never become an intact person as long as you work toward a future that you want to see. You have to work toward one that you will never see. And that has to do with time. In Native societies, you do not have this limited version of time. It's actually kind of a lot like uh, multiverse, uh, you know, uh, astrophysics that they have now. Because there is no verb to be in none of the native languages, at least that I speak, like there is in English. And, and Greek and all these other, you know, Indo-European languages, there is no, uh, time is not so static and there's no beginning and no end. And so the point is that I'm trying to make is that even if you can do something that is gorgeous, something that is worthy, that feeds the holy in nature, you may not feel it, you may not see it because we're not here for that. But you slowly but surely self-initiate and start to carve yourself into something that's worth descending from. If it's only for the person themselves or only for the culture themselves or only for this and only for that or only to get a lot of stuff or, or to get a, a zap or a blast or something, you can't really feel the real deliciousness of life because the nervous system has been so compromised by not being intact that you really don't know what it is. But in the instant that you say, I can't see what this thing is. I don't know what this thing is, but and yet my soul so much wants it. But in the wanting of it, you crush it. So instead of wanting it, you throw feasts for it and invite it to that dinner and then promise not to capture it. It's like, it's like capturing wild horses. Like when I was a kid, we, you know, when the reservation they had a lot of wild horses and um, we always thought, well, we, you know, we're really stupid. You know, we thought we'll go out and just catch one, you know, <laughs> but they're, they're, they can run really fast. You know, it doesn't matter what you're on, you know. And uh, <laughs> what we realized later was that we had to give them a gift. We didn't, couldn't trick them either. We couldn't give them something and then throw a rope over their head. They'd kill us anyway. Even if we did that, what were we going to do once we caught them, you know, but that we would make friends with them. And we would give a feast and not even show up at the feast. And then someday, maybe even just sit there, maybe for days, maybe months, maybe even years until that thing could sniff us and want us. And then we realized that those things was our own soul that had been alienated and was the thing that made us intact. And our ability to sit there, our ability to, to make the beauty or the delicious thing that that horse wanted or our souls want or the world wants or the holy wants was what made us worthy human beings. Not that we could catch the horse, not that we could own it or manipulate it or harness like we could nature or anything like that. No, the fact that we honorably wanted to give something that we fell in love with and wanted it to be happy. And so it comes down to courting. So our people who have lost everything of this kind of connection, as you put it, with the world, they still can give. They can still become something in the process of making that happen. Even if you don't know how, if you try, failure is great as long as it's beautiful.
it doesn't matter because humans, they don't, they're, they're not here to get what they want. That's what's all this warfare going on. It's terrible stuff that's going on now, constantly. And so it comes down to the fear of not being at home, of not being intact, and of constantly fleeing with technological quote-unquote advancements to the point now where they're blasting their butts off to Mars to, you know, drop, <laughs> drop, <laughs> uh, that's so funny, you know, to drop big old things of water. We need our water. It'll take our water, you know, and put it on Mars and grow mm-hmm. potatoes or something. I don't know what they're doing. But the point <laughs> is, is that to stay home and be not happy, but be willing to feed something you can't see the magnificent things that you can make and do will turn you into a person that's worth descending from so that we have generations in the future who remember the gift that you made, even though you didn't get to have it. That's beautiful, Martin. Thank you for this. And, and there was two, there was like a few kind of beautiful nuggets, beautiful lessons from your, your book, uh, the unlikely piece of that I wanted to pass on. And this is one of them. Would you mind sharing the story of um, when you were with your teacher and your teacher was close to his last days and he asked you to keep the seeds alive and you asked him how? (laughs) And and he said, I don't know. But you still went. I think there's such a beautiful lesson there. Well, Chibaleo was a... Well... There's a lot of anthropologists that knew Chibiliu, and they tell different stories than I do because they didn't know him the same way I did. But <clears throat> Chibiliu was a strong guy. He was as tall, it doesn't sound like anything, but he was as tall as I was. I was 5'6". And an average Mayan, at least in those days, in Tutu Hill, was 4'10 to 5 feet tall. So he was like a giant in his town. You know, He would go to the market and everybody asked him where everything was because he could see where it was, you know. And he had a he had a bellow like an elephant. He just trumpeted through the streets. You know, he was a wow man, and uh, he was highly feared by his enemies, but really loved by most of the people. And so Chib, when his last day had come, you know, he jumped off a roof. I used to have a little place I used to paint by the edge of the lake, which I no longer own. But he climbed up there and jumped on me. Almost killed me, a little bastard. But he said, "Man, you got to wake up." That's what he said. Oh, God, be with that, he said. You know, I, I thought you were livelier than that. You, know, you, didn't even, you weren't even paranoid. There was somebody behind you. And, you know, there was a terrible war on. People were rolling up dead. 1,800 people in our town were killed during this time. And Chip said, you know, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And he says, your job, my friend, is to keep the seeds alive. And... You know, I mean, I wrote a whole book on that. I mean, it's not easy to describe in, you know, in a soundbite here. But, uh, I mean, the seeds in the village were actually all destroyed. They actually were destroyed. The birth and death seeds, anyway, they came back alive miraculously. You can read about it in that book. I think I said it really good. A guy named Mabushtol affected it. But, But Shiv, what he meant by that, which... You know, I thought he was talking about metaphorically, which, you know, in a sense he is, but with natives, it was always the same. The metaphor and also the physical reality are one and the same to them and are to me. And what he was saying, uh, the, the crux of it was that keep, you can't grow, you can't keep seeds alive by preserving them in a museum. 
You can't keep seeds alive and you can't keep knowledge alive by never using it and by having it stuck in books that are full of cobwebs or people just read it and don't know what it means. You have to have teachers to rehydrate those seeds, regrow the seeds in every generation. And this was the greatest teaching with, you know, it takes a long time to learn. And I mean, I did know it, you know, abstractly and intellectually, but I didn't realize that the problem with uh, civilized culture is that people have to become initiated every generation. You can't scientifically discover something in a native culture and then all of a sudden next generation's research is added to it. No, you have to discover the same damn thing all over, but in the new circumstances so that it has viability and it has a, it's relevant to the times. And so what Chiv was saying is, is that you have to replant those seeds in the conqueror's heart and the people who don't understand it and let them grow. But don't, he said, this is a great thing he said, he says, don't, he says, he says, don't you refuse them and turn them away because they don't look like what you planted. <laughs> you know, uh, boy, do I know that one. And <laughs> because what, we, what, you'll ha what you'll end up with is fundamentalism. In other words, mm -hmm. you plant the seeds and then they regrow and then they come out and you say, well, who are you? You know, it says, don't mm -hmm. ask that question. Well, you can ask the question, who are you? But take the seeds, take what comes, replant them again, learn how to grow those ones and keep planting them and keep planting them and keep growing. And I did that. But it took me a while to realize that holding the seeds and holding the sacred knowledge and the holding this whole thing well, it was going to kill me anyway. All, trying to carry all this stuff by myself, literally, I mean, you know, mm. more ways than one. And I mean, a culture of one is a zero, you know, it's too close yeah. to zero. It become the last of the Mohicans. There's no, no future in that. So wow. it took me a long time to realize, no, no, man, you got to plant them. And then people have to realize in this day that they have to relearn what their ancestors already knew. They can't learn it by hearing about it. That's the problem. It can't be yeah. taught. But you can teach the circumstances in order to find it. And once you find it, you can't capture it. You have to become it. You have to give up who you were and then let it take over. And that's been the hard part for modern people because people will go to places and they will see something, but then they want the experience for their own instead of them being destroyed by the experience and remade and recreated. So Chib was saying, you, the thing is, all the things you've been doing here in this crazy town of Santiago, Tishlan, you got to take them with you and you got to plant them because we're going to lose them here. We're going to totally lose them, which they have. And which, you know, all the left wing is going to argue very heavily with me about, but I'm not arguing. And he says, plant them in the place where, you know, they're not supposed to grow. And then when, whatever they grow, accept their growth and then re-mitigate yourself with it and stick them back in the ground and grow them again and keep growing them again and growing them again and growing them again. And if you ever get a chance and you feel like it, you bring them back here and we'll, we'll try to grow culture again. Like I said, it's an impossible task. It probably wouldn't work, but it's a worthy thing to try. So, yeah, that's what that's what Chiv said when he no, he died the next day, just right on schedule, you know. <laughs> that guy, he died a lot of times, but that time he actually died. Yeah, he's very An urgent message. 
thanks for that, Martin. Because the, the reason well, why I asked you, yeah. sorry, the re- the reason why I asked you about it because I think it's so applicable for many people listening as well, which is this idea that they know that there is some wisdom uh, that they need to carry on. But I remember there's a beautiful reflection that you have in the book where you say, "I realized that I couldn't." I was trying to replicate exactly the life that was in Guatemala. And I needed to realize I could never do that, but I could still keep the seeds alive in the US with different people. And it will look different, but I'm still keeping the seeds. And I think that's so important to hear now when people, like you said, are rushing towards fundamentalism or nihilism. Yeah, or nihilism. Or even to think that they could remake something that they never experienced. The point is, the main main thing to remember is that you won't see it. You plant it and you'll do these worthy things, but it's not for you to have or for anybody to go, you know, lay down their lives for you or follow you around in a cult, which I've fought like hell uh, mm-hmm. to not have anybody bother me with that. And because mm-hmm. it's not about people. It's not about people. Mm-hmm. And then everybody says, oh, then you're a Christian, you know, you're a fundamental Christian or a Muslim. No, 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 it's not about that either. It's about something much bigger than that. It's about what God, who God answers to, you know, which is bigger than God. So mm-hmm. this is, um, uh, it's very, very hard to say because in English we have, like I said, the verb to be and we're shackled by its tyranny. Whereas if you, um, you have to understand a certain um channels are cut into the brain and to the the synapses and the neuropeptides when you use certain words a certain way. And I I once met a man, you know, from Sligo, actually, who translated, um, yeah, a guy named Henry. He he had a beautiful tweeds on, you know, and he translated (laughs) The Secrets of the Talking Jaguar into Gaelic, and he read it back to me during a gig one time. It was absolutely wow. gorgeous, and I, I I didn't understand the word of it, but everybody was <laughs> clapping, you know, and I was like, wow. <laughs> but the actual sound of it had medicine in it, you know? It had medicine mm. in it, and I, I asked him later, I, you know, I was flabbergasted, but, and I, you know, I said, well, Henry, I mean, how was it to translate? It was nothing. It was nothing to translate, because the way you wrote the English was so subversive to English, it was really easy. And I said, well, that's mm. good to hear. I've been accused of that before. But yeah. So anyway, I don't know why I said that. You're Irish. I swear I told you. No, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It's beautiful to know. So there, there's a copy <laughs> of, is there a copy of all your books in Gaelga, in Irish? I I haven't the slightest. I don't think so. I don't think so. But I, I know the secrets of talking jaguars out there somewhere. You might go beating around Sligo somewhere to find this character. <laughs> He's an old, you know, one of these people you have in Europe, you know, hiding under the bricks somewhere in a very mossy place, you know, doing odd things like that, you know. So mm. it's not that, yeah, you know, and that in Western Ireland, everyone's speaking Gaelic in a lot of places. So yeah, it's amazing. Irish, I'm, I'm smiling at the <laughs> at the thought of of some people in Galway or in Sligo uh, reading your book in Gaelic. It's amazing. Yeah, I um, well, I had no idea. I had no idea. You know, I didn't think anybody read anything I've ever written in Ireland, much less. You know, but I guess I was wrong. You know, you're wrong, I went Martin, to tell stories. <laughs> and and I have a feeling there'll be more people wanting to read your stuff after this conversation. Um, 
Well, I've got 10 one, books out there, so don't stop at that first one. Keep going. <laughs> you know. No, we'll keep going. There's more coming. I'm still writing. I'm, God give us life. You know. Martin, I, I wanted to ask you about, about stories. Obviously, you're a storyteller. Um, and one thing that touched me in the book that, I'm, that we mentioned before is how your, your children found it difficult when, when you were still trying so hard to keep the seeds alive of your time in Guatemala, but they were in the US and they were just around what you call, I think it's called, Yeah. hold on now, it was a beautiful description that I'm going to use from now on. It was the numbing monster of modernity. Well, I've said that a lot of ways and a lot of times you read away, man. <laughs> but uh, I want to broadside. because like, I know you've worked with a lot of young people. I know you've worked in initiations with a lot of young people. Um, and is there, have you come across stories or have, have stories come through you that you feel have resonated with, with young people, even in the, uh, the numbing monster of modernity? Well, as I said before, I mean, we're all born from mother's wombs and we all have beating hearts. And there's a great, gigantic, beautiful wilderness in the best sense of wilderness rumbling around somewhere inside us, you know. And the younger uh, kids, you know, they they come out of the womb a little bit more... uh, fresh but nowadays with all of the computerizations and televisions and everything they get in the womb all sorts of chemical and all sorts of uh, feeling of disaster and they need to be known in order to survive Mm -hmm. the constant exposure to what would normally be trauma in in an intact people i remember the first time they they put radios you know the transistor radio those things i don't know if you remember those those tiny things when they first came out i remember the first time the catholic church initiated a, a a radio program and all of the highlands and all of the women were running around till they ran out of batteries no one could figure out what to do with them but they would listen and they would hear the news you know, mm-hmm. and no one spoke Spanish except some of the, and they would translate. And I remember one time going through the village and everybody was weeping and, and going crazy. And I said, what happened? What happened? They said, somebody went over a bus and a hundred, and, uh, over a cliff and a bus and a hundred people were killed. And they said, where? In Cocales, you know, and, in Cochamahualpa. And they didn't know. And then I finally found out it was in India. Somebody, had, all these people had died. And everybody in the village was upset about it and wondering if they should go and give them some food or get their survivors or go and see if they could help them. They didn't know where India was. And I realized, wow, these are intact people, man. Mm-hmm. They never get this kind of trauma and they don't hear about it all the time. And then the wars came and numbed everybody out, you know, so everybody's stoned mm-hmm. on meth now, you know. But it's the same as what has happened in everywhere else in the world. So you don't have the youth being any more you know, in tune than anybody else, but the Gen Z's, there's some hope with these guys. I don't know that they're, they're really looking at things differently. I mean, they're still kids and they're still mad and they're still thinking that they were handed a bum deal, but, and indeed they were, but every generation has, but you cannot mm. get your identity from blaming the previous generation for your, your situation. The thing is, yeah. you have to learn how to become a human being to see the beauty 
and the grandness of what we've been given in the earth. And if you live in a city, it's really hard to see. So you have to fabricate your walls into something. You have to fabricate your gardens into something. Everything is synthetic. But yeah, when I actually stopped doing the initiations because I couldn't find enough adults to not betray what I was doing when they, when they started getting powerful, when they started to see what they call results. I didn't want to see any results. I wanted to see adults. I wanted to mm. see these kids grow into people that wanted to do the same thing I was doing. But it's impossible mm. at this point to do because there's not a culture. You can't just let these kids back into the shark tank after they've been to this place that is so amazing. you know. And then all of a sudden they go out there and, whoa, then they really have to armor up. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But they know mm. at least that, that, that there is something else. They know there is something else. And that knowing that there is something else may, in the long run, make a difference because they will be somebody worth descending from. And like I said, it's an impossible task, but uh, worthy nonetheless. But, yeah. Thanks for that, Martin. Um, sure. It, it's, it's just a, it's a beautiful message that I, that I think a lot of listeners will appreciate, this, this idea of, of, of trying the impossible task and uh, surrendering to the knowledge that you won't, know, you won't see the seeds of your, your labor. You won't see the fruits of your labor, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it and yeah. that like you said it's not there's no finish line it's it's about the beauty yes. in our effort. that's right there's it's, no finish line no and it's it's really good because even on like hard days martin sometimes i read your stuff and it really just fills me up so like the way you write well, i'm glad i'm gonna read it too you know <laughs> yeah I'm sorry, I'm from New Mexico and I grew up in village. We're always joking because we were, never had much material wealth, but we had the wealth of our hearts. And so we're always making a lot of jokes, you know, so I, love uh, it. I can't help it. I love it. <laughs> I just have a few more questions for you, Martin. One was, can I ask, um, how has your perspective changed since you first moved back to New Mexico, like over the last few years and decades? Like, has there been a, a substantial shift? Are you are you seeing things a little differently? Like, do you see your time in Guatemala a little differently? I'm interested to see how your last kind of 10, 15 years has, has shaped or has changed since, for instance, me writing, reading this book now, The Unlikely Piece at Chuchimakik. This is about 10 years old. I'm, I'm interested to know if, if there has been a, a shift per se. Oh, I hesitate to say that I haven't grown very much. I'm still the same old idiot I've always been ever since I was two. Uh, as far as I think I'm always looking for a place to say it better or a place to say it more or a place to say it where someone will feel or hear or know mm. better. As far as the vision goes, the vision isn't mine. And though, so I couldn't claim it. But um, once they've been destroyed by uh, the initiatory process and put back together again, you serve a thing that's a lot differenter than what you want. You serve something, uh, power. I don't, the word power is a very bad word, but you serve something that is grand. And that uh, has never left me. And it's to great consternation with a lot of people. I have changed a bit. <laughs> in that, like, I got white hair now, you know. I talk just as loud and just as much, but I do uh, choose my battles. 
now, a little more than mm -hmm. I used to. I used to be, you know, a real grandiose fool. I would charge in everywhere, anytime. I would do anything, lift anything. I was, you know, but now I look, uh, the uh, prudence has taught me to say, no, I'm going over here and I will do that and I will maybe give something to so-and-so. I have better vision with the people who would I should hate, but I don't. Because my biggest challenge my whole life, I mean, my mother was Native too, and, you know, she had a, uh, her family had a great uh, anathema with the English, and I worked so long to get over there, and that's why I worked in England so much. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like some English people, whether I like it or not, you know. And uh, I do, I do, and do indeed, because what's inside, I realize nobody in England is from English, England. They're, they're all uh, refugees of colonialism that goes way back, but the 1100s and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. So I got a big idea of, of teaching the origins of running away from home because of a thought that couldn't be thought and shouldn't be thought by people, which I call the impossible thought. And this... Uh, this vision of what this looks like and how the permutation it takes, it's very painful to have and understand and have the, the, uh, not as much wordology in order to get across because it cannot be taught in the literal sense, both a class or in a book. But the circumstances for the changes with oneself and people can. And I think... Um, if my perspective has changed, it is only in my approach. It is not in what I see or what I think is to be seen because I'm still serving as hard and heavy and long and loving as I can. And sometimes that means being very, very quiet. Right now I have a, uh, a kid, a teenage kid who is in uh, high school. And she's been, this person has been um, homeschooled all their life and has been with my bullet kitchen and everything I think since birth. And I asked her, so why do you want to go to high school? So I have to learn to survive in the society that you talk about. You know, I got to go there and try mm -hmm. this. I said, you're very wise, but you're, you know, here's some armor. <laughs> but don't let, that, don't let that armor become you. Don't let mm -hmm. that armor become you. We have to armor up, but we can't numb ourselves. The thing inside has to stay liquid. Uh, armor has mm -hmm. to come off at some point. So there has to be something worthy that we constantly do. I gave a guy the seeds. There's some other seeds that are in a, on a likely piece of Kuchimu kick that were really, really old and that I had since I was a young man and I have a miraculous story, which is really what the whole book is about. And I, the only person I've ever given these seeds to and said, you know, he could use them is is another new mexican guy and he grows them but one time he he got his he got some cupidity going inside him and he thought he'd sell them and the corn would never grow again and it didn't grow at my house and it didn't grow at his house it didn't grow anywhere and he didn't know i knew i said well let me tell you buddy i heard that you were you were selling them and they're not for sale and so we made a lot of ceremonies and did a lot of things. And he started to plant them again and they grew again and he never sold them again. And then, he, but it's the, pro, it's the problem with modern people. Like Jesus said, they need miracles to see the reality of it. But the point is, is everything that's happened that's in nature is a miracle. It's a total amazing scientific miracle. So when that vision comes along, my vision of it hasn't changed. 
but how to make that vision possible for people. Oh, like I said, it's, a, it's an idiotic thing. It's a worthless task, but I just going at it with, you know, all my claws and all my teeth and all my, I mean, you know, something got to be charming too, just whatever it takes. Because old Chibaleo used to say to me, he says, look, if they come when you call, call. If they don't, pull them. If they don't come when you pull them, push them. If that doesn't work, Throw a rock at them and run away. Maybe they'll chase you. You know, whatever it <laughs> takes, do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've gone by that my whole life. So God bless that old man, you know. And there are many people that are more closer to being intact as a result, Martin. <laughs> God willing. <laughs> Martin, I just wanted to ask you about, I know you released an album with your children recently. I just wanted to ask about, about the process and the project and and what um yeah how did it come about and how did it feel and what was the message well there's two albums we did two albums in one year and uh, i was a rock and roller when i was in my teens on the reservation where i grew up there were a bunch of old men well, I thought they were old men. They were in their 30s and 40s. <laughs> they were old, you know. They had, been, they had been soldiers in the Korean War. The Americans were fighting in Korea. And they were Indians. And they had a integrated army at that time, but it hadn't quite kicked in. So the blacks and the Mexicans and the Indians were pretty much in the same units. And as a result, these guys who were in the Korean War were with black guys that were from Chicago. And they all learned to play rhythm and blues. You know, the Isley Brothers, man, you know, and um, mm. all of uh, Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon and all this stuff. And one of these guys was blinded in that war. And he was sent to the Institute for the Blind and he became a harmonica player with all these uh, uh, guys, uh, African-Americans. And they formed an electric guitar band. You know, they were the most amazing. The old Alamo amps, you know, tweed amps and Maserite guitars, you know, matching and little tuxedos. <laughs> it's amazing. And they went around to all the uh, community centers and played rock and roll. And huh? when I was about 14 or 13, I was a very good guitar player. I loved playing guitar, but I didn't play for anybody. And I used to go listen to them practice because the village wouldn't let them practice inside the village, but they let them practice where my mom lived, which was up at the school compound. And there were these little shacks where the janitors lived, you know. And these guys would have their little band in there. And it would be, I mean, that place was just rocking. <clears throat> and I was just blown away. You know, teenage kids in those days, you know, hear that bass going and the drummer. And, and I would listen. I just loved all that music. And then they, they'd watch me every day. I'd be playing my little acoustic guitar out front. And the Rolling Stones and the Beatles had come, and that was the death of the music that they played, you know? And mm. These guys were all, it was all black music. And so, but they wanted to stay, have, keep going, having gigs outside the reservation. So they asked me, hey, you can be, I, I look like a white guy, you know, I'm half-breed. So I got you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, and I don't look like most of the Indians. But, you know, I grew up with everybody, and I was one of the greats. You can be, you can teach us how to play like the Rolling Stones. Well, I had no more idea how to play like the Rolling Stones than they did. But they said, we give you a job. And I was so blown away, man. I had to ask my mom because they played in a lot of bars and stuff, you know. And she said, okay, you can go, but, you know, only for, for the summer. Because when you got back from school, I don't want you, you know, carousing around. So I went in, and I learned. I played all these discs to my parents' great dismay, full blast, you know, and learned this song and learned that song and learned this and learned that and learned that, you know. 
the birds and the yard birds and Eric Clapton and all this stuff. And I got, I got really good at it. And so we would go around and we'd play with these guys and we still play the Isley Brothers and we still play, you know, all this uh, Little Richard song and everything. So that was that. And so when I went to Guatemala, there was a small part of my career and I don't talk much about it in any of my books, but I was actually really famous as a rocker. And it only it was only a, a career that lasted like nine months or so. I mean, people used to come up and cut my hair and sell them. And, you know, it was really nuts. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but well, I'm not going to talk about that right now because there's a lot of stuff okay. in there that's uh, forget it. But I quit. Okay. And then I was out in the villages. And then that was that. So when I came back to the States, you know, I have love of all music, world music, native music, uh, everything, all sorts of stuff from Tuva, from Mongolia. And I made this crazy school of mine. Every morning was about music, not rock music, but all the musics of the world. And I had several people like the, the, the one company, the Vital Records, that guy was my student. I told him, go make a record company. Now he records all this amazing stuff from the jungle, from Southern Europe and everywhere. Natural people's music that is forgotten. Just the origins of music. And I made it so that all the students had to memorize and hear all of the stuff that is the roots that is in their pop music. And it's just marvelous. So when COVID came, you know, my kids were little then uh, at the beginning of the school. But when COVID came, they were growing into this part where they wanted to become more social, you know, and they wanted to get out. But we couldn't go anywhere. We're isolated here on the ranch, which is a, a very marvelous isolation compared to a lot of people I knew. I lost mm -hmm. a lot of friends during COVID, especially natives. But they started, they really, they did nothing about pop music. They knew nothing about popular anything. They knew only, you know, music from, um, they knew Afro pop, you know, they knew orchestra Baobab or, you know, the rail band and stuff like that. But they didn't know anything about, you know, Bruce Springsteen or anything like that. But they were busting at the seams as all teenagers do, as they're supposed to do. And that's why you have initiation, man, because they're the only ones that can save us from death. Death is a God that gives life, and only the youth are the ones that can wrestle them with their beauty and the art that they make. So they were really interested in music, and I didn't like gangster rap, okay? I didn't like, you know, uh, oh, me, 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 and I didn't like mope rock, and I didn't like all this stuff. People were slobbering and complaining. I said, okay, you guys want rock music? I'm going to teach you rock music. And we're going to learn it historically from the very beginning, and you're going to learn how to play it. So we got some electric guitars, and we started going at it. And we actually set up a home studio, but we didn't have anybody to run it, mind you. <laughs> but we, I could sure play. So so I found a guy that records for, uh, did all the recording for Jean-Baptiste. And still does. He just got another Grammy for it. But he moved to New wow. Mexico because he was sick of the rat race. And he said, yeah, I'll record you in that hall. So because we were afraid to go into the main studios and with all of the COVID and, and the contagiousness of and the kids were terrified to go out in the public. I said, let's play here. So we played and we actually made an album. We put out a vinyl and it's called Retreads. And I called it the prehistoric delinquent and the relative minors because they were already classically trained, these kids, and they already knew how to play pianos and violins and all this sort of thing. But all of a sudden, we're rock and rolling, much to the great horror of my clientele, you know, which was fine with me, too, because they got too fundamental about who I was, you know. And then we okay. started playing our own music, which is the latest album that came out, of which I'm actually very proud and is very doing quite well. It's called The Sun's Gonna Melt Your Gun. 
and uh, you know, and anyway, there we go. And so the kids are every time we record, you know, their voices are that much older and that much older and that much older, and uh, it's been a joy. I love rock and rolling, but I also love. Like native music is never made for consumption. It's never made to sell. It's never made to hear. You hear powwow music, but that's not native music. Native music is the sacred music that's inside the culture. Mm -hmm. And that's only used for healing and only used for ceremonies. And I have taught all my students that you'd make a gift for the holy, but you never sell that. You never pretend that that's who you are. Because if you do, you'll, you'll, you'll have done nothing but sell God out. So, but... The people also deserve music, and they also deserve beauty and joy. And also, it's just part of who we are. You have to have a musical soul. Every people in the world are musical. And that's why when I did my school, it was music and food. And they start learning that all the old instruments that are violins, and guitars, and cithras, and chitoles, and everything that, that becomes the, you know, the electric guitar and everything, started with nomads in Central Asia, which are our ancestors, because they had horses and that's what the strings were made out of. And all of the visionary stuff that they were doing, like Cossacks, you know, where they're healing one another with this uh, Dombra music and everything. It's just vast. So I think music is where language starts, because if you will notice that real language is a musical thing. And I, uh, my hypothesis is that all human communication was done musically. In other words, when people spoke, they, they actually sang. And there's and also some evidence for people having whistled. And so that when people spoke, they, they sang their language. And then when it gets more and more imperial and more and more civilized, they start to clamp down on that musicality, on that ornateness, on that long-windedness, on that great... Uh, story that is in the, the musicality of the human voice. And so when people sing and when people make music, then some there's just some part that goes, whoa, yeah, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And I started rock and rolling, and I'm still doing it, and I'm going to make other music, too. I'm working on a third album now with the kids. But uh, anyway, yeah, there you go. Prehistoric delinquent and the relative minors, man. The That's sun going to melt your guns. <laughs> About global warming, and okay. uh, well, it's pretty. It's pretty shamanic. <laughs> There's another one there. It's called the heart. My heart lives in the sea. Wow. Yeah, listen to it. There's six yeah, songs on this I... album. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Listen to it on Tidal, oh. man. Don't listen. Don't listen to it on YouTube, man. It sounds like you know a pile of bolts, man. Listen to it in the real good fidelity. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, and I'll also and put I'll the link I'll, down. I'll send you. Yeah, yeah, please. I'll send you a vinyl. I've got. Uh, do you have a turntable? I do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll send you uh, the vinyl of the new one. Is coming out this week. Actually, it just got printed, and so they're they're that's pressing. Amazing. And the old vinyl, I'll send that to you because that's just the old vinyl is just cruising music. It's the music that we used to drive around and pick up trucks and drink. You know, you know. But it's it's a lot of fun too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you lot so of, much, my lot, Yeah. I'm the wildest person you'll ever have on here. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and Martin, we're coming close to the end. <laughs> I just wanted no, to... No, it's uh, a long ways away. We're just, we just have to take a hiatus for a couple of days. I'll come back again sometime. i got lots to say. 
Mm. <laughs> well, Martin, if you want to come back, you're more than welcome. It would be it would be an honor to have you again. No, thank you. You're a good interviewer. Martin, I also just wanted to thank you and just say, uh, like personally, that uh, my first introduction to your work was Grief and Praise, The Smell of Rain on Dust. And oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It really helped me move from, I guess, really feeling the grief, really feeling powerful emotions and not seeing it as, you know, in some spiritual traditions or religions, it's it's seen as like a, an ignorance to the way of life. Whereas with the uh-huh. grief of praise, yes. it's more, it's a reaffirmation that I'm, these are my emotions because I care so much about life, about yeah. the things. Yes. And that was a huge shift for me. And I really, really thank you so much for that. That into oh, the world. I'm so glad it goes go to some good, and that yeah, uh, you know, that you loved it. Absolutely. Um, Martin, yeah. we always end well, with I, this question, and the question is, uh, what lesson is life teaching you right now? Uh, right now, is that um, a computer and all of these little gizmos and things like that are very very sad. And they just they have they're slaves just like we are, and they've been taken from all the collodium and all the different minerals that have been mined by warlords in places where people are making no money, and that the computers never wanted to be computers, and the iPhones never wanted to be iPhones, and none of these things ever wanted to be, and the satellites in the air they're destroying all of the atmosphere and killing all the migratory birds, and uh, and the whales which you'll hear about in my songs and. The sun's going to melt, you're gone. That uh, they're not to blame. The one it is the avarice of the people who are trying to fly away from real life. The civilization in the last 4,000 years has basically been a gigantic refugee movement away from home to get away from the courage that it takes in order to stick and stay in a place and love it by feeding it the best things you can make. So... Yeah. Thank you for that, Martin. Thank you. You bet. Um, yes, sir. This has been it's been a pleasure, an honor. Um, I'll be sure to leave the links to your books, to your website, and to your new album in the show notes. <laughs> and thank you. And maybe we can do it again sometime. Well, if you want to, you know, I know I'm a disturbing character. I remember Robert Bly, the first time he ever introduced me in a men's conference, he says, gentlemen, I want to introduce you to a man who's my friend, and his name is Martin Petal. I wanted to let you know he is the spookiest man in North America. He looks like you, but he's one of them, you know. <laughs> I said, thanks a lot, man. <laughs> then I knew I was in trouble, but that's the way it goes. All right. Well, be well over there in Ireland and have some tea for me and uh, say hello to all my relatives. Yeah, do well. Sing lots of songs.
tell them that progress ain't progress Unless progress is long You tell them That progress ain't progress Unless progress is long Sun's gonna melt your gun. 